the governor, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Thank you, thank you. Isn't it cool, huh? The American ambassador comes here and he introduces the main man. I love that. So, Ambassador Bleisch, thank you very much for the great introduction. It's exactly the way I wrote it. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's wonderful to be back here again in Australia. I love coming back here. I love your country. Now, my first exposure to Australia was when I arrived in America in 1968. And that's where I met a great guy by the name of Paul Graham. Now, Paul Graham was a very powerful guy. He was a power lifter who could squat with 600 pounds and did bench press with 500 pounds very easy. And uh, he also was known to be an alligator wrestler. So I said to myself, maybe all Australians are powerlifting alligator wrestlers. <laughs> Only to find out later on, no, Australia is just like every other country. They have different types of people there and so on. But Paul and I have become extremely good friends over the years. And we were training partners in America. And uh, over here in Australia, he promoted health and fitness and bodybuilding for literally for decades. And so uh, his beautiful wife, Carol, and he are here today. They're sitting somewhere over there. Why don't you get up and just uh, give them a big hand They're right over here. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. It is uh, nice to see them. And I also want to mention that they organized in 1980, the Mr. Olympia competition here at the Sydney Opera House, which is a competition that I entered and I won. It was the seventh Mr. Olympia competition. And I tell you, I was so proud because we were on the same stage where greats uh, performed like Pavarotti and Frank Sinatra. And it was the same theater where Queen Elizabeth watched an opera there and Pope John Paul held mass there. So it was really a spectacular place to hold the Mr. Olympia competition. And we bodybuilders felt so proud to be on that same kind of a stage and in this great, extraordinary architecture and, and, and building. So uh, it was one of those great events that I would never forget. But of course, every time I've come to Australia, I love more and more this country. I remember the first time when I came here in the 70s to promote fitness. I fell in love with the beaches, with the miles and miles of beautiful uh, beaches. And then later on when I came to promote my movies, um, I loved the fans. They always received me with open arms. And of course, when I became governor, I loved the idea that uh, Australia was fighting for a clean energy future and for renewable energy and for cleaning the environment and all this. So there was something that we had in common between California and, uh, and Australia. So I loved all of those things. And today it's so wonderful to be back here and to be back for the 21st Century Financial Education Summit. So I want to say thank you very much to Jamie McIntyre for inviting me here. 
and that Jamie McIntyre is an extraordinary human being and I love that he says that he has a PhD, a PhD in results because I am a professor of action. So we're going to get along really well, we do. But I want to congratulate him for doing such a great job and uh, helping hundreds of thousands of people discover their potential. And it is great to work with him here on this conference. Now, I did an informal poll before I came here just to find out what I should really talk about. Because different countries that I go, they want me to talk about different things. So the results were quite interesting, I tell you. Like, for instance, uh, the numbers were all over the place. 40% of the people said they wanted me to talk about politics and about policy. But there was 50% of the people that wanted me to talk about show business and about bodybuilding. And the rest of the 10% just wanted to have their money back from a movie, Hercules Goes Bananas. So, I mean, come on, relax. Anyway, seriously, wherever I go, people ask me all the time, what is the secret to success? And I always tell them what the short version is, you got to have a 22-inch biceps. <laughs> and you got to be able to kill predators with your bare hands. And you, you have to be able to travel back in time to save the human race. And of course, you got to have this charming Austrian accent. That is a, that's a given. But today, since this is a seminar and a kind of a conference about success, I think I can give you the long version here. And the long version is that I actually always had five rules. And everything that I did, I always used those five rules. And those five rules helped me to become successful in various different areas. And I think I believe that those rules can be applied to almost anyone and everyone. You don't need to be a bodybuilding champion. You don't need to want to be a governor of California or to be an action hero or anything like that. If you want to excel in whatever you do, those rules are for you. It's that simple. Now, I have to tell you right off the top that I always was very intense. As a kid already, I was very intense and I was very hungry. I always wanted to be the best. I always wanted to be number one. I always wanted to get to the top. I never believed in just getting by. Now, I have nothing against people that just want to get by because I think there are many roads to happiness, but I think that we all here like to be successful and we are driven. So that's why those rules apply to you. So my first rule is find your vision and follow it. You see, I think it's the most important thing that we have a very clear vision of where we go, a goal, where, where do we go? Because you can have the best ship in the world. You can have the best cruise liner, but if the captain does not know where to go, that ship will drift around the world and out there at sea and will never end up anywhere. And this is exactly the way it is in real life. If you don't have a goal, if you don't have a vision, you just drift around and you're not going to be happy. This is why it is so important to have that vision. Now, I created that vision in Austria because I grew up after the Second World War. Austria, right along with Germany, lost the Second World War. Thank God. Uh, and the problem was that everyone was so depressed because they lost the war that there was alcoholism everywhere. There was, of course, depression, there was a terrible economic situation, there was famine, there was starvation and all of those things. And also it was kind of a little place and narrow. I felt kind of, I wanted to get out of there, I wanted to escape. And I couldn't see myself really to work there and to stay there, to work in a factory or to work on a farm 
or to even to follow my father's footsteps and to become a police officer. I couldn't see that either. As a matter of fact, that's what my, my parents wanted me to do. They wanted me to become a police officer and to marry a girl by the name of Heidi <laughs> and to have a bunch of children and to run around like the Von Trapp family in The Sound of Music. But that's not what I saw. This was the vision of my parents, but not mine. And luckily, one day in school, I watched a documentary about America. And I found myself, I knew exactly that is where I wanted to end up. I wanted to be in America. Everything that I saw in the documentary, I just loved. Everything was so big. I remember the tall skyscrapers, the monstrous bridges, the giant freeways filled with beautiful cars, the huge jetliners, movie stars, Muscle Beach, and all of those things. I could not wait to get there. The question was just, how do I get there? How do I get to America? I mean, this was not a common thing to do way back in the 50s. No one had the money to travel or anything. But one day, I was fortunate enough to see a magazine. And that magazine showed me the path to America. And it was a bodybuilding magazine. And on the cover was this very muscular guy that was standing there like Hercules with a Hercules outfit. His name was Reg Park. This Reg Park was on that cover, and I remember the cover said, Mr. Universe becomes Hercules star. I read the article as fast as I could, learning about how he grew up in Leeds in England, poor, and how he trained five hours a day, every single day, and trained and trained and trained and lifted weights, and then he finally became Mr. Great Britain. And then he became Mr. Universe, and then he won a second Mr. Universe title and a third Mr. Universe title, and then all of a sudden he landed in Rome in Chinichita doing Hercules movies. And there he made millions of dollars, and this, this money he took and bought himself a gymnasium chain in South Africa, and he became a successful gymnasium owner. And as I read, I became more and more certain about my own future. As I read this story, I was so excited, so interested, I knew exactly that I wanted to become another Reg Park. I know he laid out the blueprint for my life, basically. I could see myself, I could visualize myself clearly to be a champion on that same stage where he won the Mr. Universe, and then to move to America, then get into movies, and then become rich and famous. I had that vision very clearly laid out. I was so happy that I knew exactly where I was going. From that moment on, everything that I did, no matter how hard I had to work or how much I had to struggle, it didn't matter. It was a wonderful joy ride because I knew what the purpose was and I found my passion. The simple truth is, if you don't have a vision, if you don't have a goal, if you don't see your future laid out in front of you, you're just floating around without a purpose. And I think that the numbers speak for themselves. This is why so many people around the world are unhappy with their jobs. I mean, in America, 74% of the people hate their job and would like to change jobs. But think about that. That means that only a quarter of the Americans love their life's work. I mean, that is a very depressing statistic. I always smiled when I worked, no matter how hard I worked. I always had a great time, no matter what I did. It didn't matter if it was in bodybuilding, or if it was in the movies, or if it was as governor. I remember in the pumping iron days, people ask me in the gym all the time, why are you smiling all the time? Why are you so happy? You have to lift 50 tons of weights. 
You have to train five hours a day. I mean, I look at the other bodybuilders' faces and lifters' faces, and they look kind of depressing. They look sour. They're miserable that they have to lift weights. You, you don't look miserable, you look happy. And I tell them always, I say, I smile because I know exactly that every rep that I do, that every set that I do, every weight that I lift, I get one step closer to turning that vision of mine into reality and becoming that Mr. Universe. I could not wait to lift another 500 pounds in the squats. I could not wait to do another thousand sit-ups. I could not wait to do bench press, more bench press and more curls until I couldn't move my arms anymore because I knew that every rep got me closer to standing on that stage as a champion. As a matter of fact, when I lifted weights, I didn't really feel like I was lifting weights. I felt like I was lifting a trophy over my head each time I lifted. And to have all those bodybuilders around me and thousands of people screaming. And I tell you that this vision didn't just help me in bodybuilding, it helped me with everything, like I said. I remember in the movie business, there was many times stunts that I had to do where I got hurt, where I was in pain, in agony, and I had to do it over and over again. I remember one incident specifically on Conan the Barbarian. There, there I was crawling on all four, on rocks, over rocks and gravel, holding my sword right in front of me. And as I was crawling, the camera followed me, and it was around 30 feet that I had to crawl on those rocks and this gravel. And eventually, after 10 takes, my elbows and my knees started bleeding and hurting. And the director came to me sheepishly and said to me, he says, do you mind if we do another take? I need a close-up of you. And I said to him, no, I don't mind at all. I said, go and do as many takes as you want. He says, no, 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 I don't want to do that because I know you're in pain, you're bleeding. I said, no, 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 I don't feel any pain. I said, the only thing I see is, is the finished scene. I see the finished scene of me crawling on all four with my sword in the front, crawling up and sneaking up behind Thalsa Doom, the main villain of the Conan movie that killed my parents, and rising up behind him and cutting his head off. That's what I see. Remember, crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentation of their women. So this is why, because I visualized that scene, this is why I did not feel that pain. I did not care if I was bleeding on my knees, because I knew that pain is temporary, but the film is permanent. And I explained that to the director, so this is why I try to tell you, always discover your vision, and the rest will follow. Now my second my second rule is never ever think small. If you're going to accomplish anything, you have to think big. You have to go and shoot for the stars. The biggest challenge most people have is because they think small. And the reason why people think small and why they choose small little goals is because they're afraid to fail. They know that if you shoot for a big goal, then the chances of failing are very high. And they're afraid of failing is one of the most common things why people are frozen and why they can't make a move in life because they're scared of failing. I say to myself, hey, I'm not worried about failing because that's part of life. You're not gonna be, go and win everything. And how far can you fall? Look at this, this is the ground. That's as far as I can fall. <laughs> and you know something? 
that the only time you really consider the failure is if you fall and you don't get up. But if you get up, you never consider the failure. So I never considered myself a failure. I always considered myself a winner, even though I fell every so often. But I always got up and I always moved forward. This is the important thing. I never had any patience, of course, for sm thinking small, because in German we have a saying, wenn schon, denn schon. And that means that if you do something, then go all out and do it well. And this was not just the case in bodybuilding. I didn't just want to be a bodybuilding champion. I wanted to be the greatest bodybuilder of all times. I wanted to have the most muscle, the, the most muscle of all times, the most definition. I wanted to win the most trophies, the most world championship titles. I just wanted to be the best. And the same is also in movies. I didn't just think about being in movies. No, I wanted to be a movie star. I wanted to have above the title billing. I wanted to become the highest paid entertainer. I basically wanted to be another John Wayne. What's wrong with that? And then the same is in politics. I didn't just want to go and uh, be in politics and enter a race for city council. I mean, let's be honest, does that sound right, Schwarzenegger, city council? No, come on. <laughs> not even Schwarzenegger and mayor, no. It had to be Schwarzenegger running for governor, but not just uh, any governor, but governor of the greatest state in the United States, of California. That was the important thing. <laughs> I give you an example of big, uh, thinking big. When I became governor, I wanted to rebuild California's ancient infrastructure. You see, America has been living off infrastructure that was built in the 50s and 60s. And it drives me absolutely insane that America hasn't started rebuilding that infrastructure. I mean, we haven't uh, invested in new roads or in new transit or in schools or in energy or anything like that for decades. The number of cars that we have now in America are four times as many as we had in the 60s. So therefore, we should be having four times as many freeways, four times as many tunnels, four times as many bridges and all this. But we don't. So this is why I wanted to get our act together and do the upgrading least in California. So when I talk about infrastructure, I didn't really want to just fix roads and fix and close some holes in the roads. I wanted to build massive freeways on top of freeways. I wanted to build the first high-speed rail in the United States. I wanted to build more bridges and more tunnels, more on-ramps and off-ramps. I wanted to see literally cranes everywhere. Well, there was no excuse for Californians to get stuck in traffic, and there was no excuse really to send your kids in overcrowded classrooms and schools, and there was also no excuse that Los Angeles has a hundred-year-old sewage system. That's shitty, I think. <laughs> At first, of course, some of the legislators looked at me like I was absolutely insane when I told them this vision. They were willing to spend maybe $5 billion, which of course is petty cash in compared to what my vision was. But so some politicians, of course, had a hard time to see the big picture because they didn't really ever travel outside California. So they haven't really seen big infrastructure. They haven't really seen big infrastructure all over the United States or maybe in Asia and China or in Korea or in Brazil or in European countries or here in Australia maybe. So they haven't seen that. And then, of course, there are other politicians that simply don't have a vision of the future past the next election, which is a common problem politicians have all over the world. So it, is, it was my job as governor to motivate them. 
and to take them and to see the traffic jams in Los Angeles and to see the overcrowded classrooms and to see all the problems that we have and I kept pushing and pushing and I pumped them up enough that eventually they saw the big picture. And eventually Democrats and Republicans came together and we invested $60 billion to rebuild California's infrastructure, the biggest investment of our state in 50 years. So that's what we did because we had a big vision and everyone bought in on this big vision. So remember, never think small, think big. My third rule is ignore the naysayers. I think it is natural that when you have a big vision and big dreams and you have big goals that people are going to say around you, I don't think it can be done. I think it's impossible or no. I tell you, I heard this all the time, but I want to tell you, don't ever let them stop you from dreaming and from shooting for the big goal. Because eliminate just simply those words, no, impossible, and it can't be done. I mean, in each one of my careers, when someone said it's impossible, I heard it's possible. When someone said it can't be done, I heard it can be done. And when someone said no, then I heard loud and clear, yes. So this is what I believed in. I am a big believer of what Nelson Mandela said. He said it always seems to be impossible and still someone does it. And that's exactly what it is. And I wanted to be that one that does it. I wanted to break the new records and I wanted to do something that no one else has ever done. So I think that's what you need to do. Don't ever be worried about that someone hasn't done it. Just think about how many times my career would have stopped. My career would have ended if I would have listened to the naysayers. I mean, it started right away when I was 15 years old and I became a bodybuilder. Right off the top when I said, I want to be a world champion in bodybuilding, I want to be Mr. Universe. They immediately said, are you crazy? You're in Austria. In Austria, you can become a ski champion <laughs> or a bicycle champion or something like that, but bodybuilding is an American sport. Forget about it, it's nuts. Then when I wanted to move to America, they said again, it's impossible. You will never be able to do that. You have no money, you're all by yourself. And then when I wanted to go into show business, after I won 13 world championship titles in bodybuilding, I said, I want to be like Reg Park. I want to be a Hercules. I want to get into movies. Well, I tell you, when I met those agents and managers and studio executives, their reaction was, <laughs> oh, Arnold, that is so funny. <laughs> you want to be what, a leading man? Oh, come on. I mean, look, uh, uh, first of all, let's start with your body. Look at your body. I mean, you're overdeveloped. You're gigantic. You're like a monster. Are you kidding me? Do you know what the new thing, the new trend is? It's little guys like Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Woody Allen. Those are the new sex symbols. Don't you get it? And then your accent, oh, it gives me the chills just listening to your German bullshit. Come on now. I mean, oh, God. I mean, it's like it's scary when you talk. It's unbelievable. I mean, have you ever, Arnold, I mean, be serious. Have you ever seen an international movie star with a German accent? It doesn't happen. Forget about that. And then your name, what is it, Schwarzen Schnitzel or something like that? Yeah, I can see that name already up there on the billboard. Yes, and people are going to storm the theater and the movie houses because Schwarzenschnitzel is starring in a movie. Oh, yeah, I can see that already. So that's what they said. They said to me, he says, look, forget about it. You're a nice guy. 
I mean, you're a bodybuilding champion. Why don't we, you open up a, up a gymnasium or a health food store or something like that? We can help you with that. And then we get you on the side some little parts, like maybe playing a bouncer. I mean, with your body, perfect. Or maybe a wrestler. Oh, oh, oh I, I have a good idea with your accent, a Nazi officer. Now, that's really great for you. I call my buddies over at Hogan's Heroes. I mean, they would probably use someone like you. So that's what they said. Imagine that. Everywhere I turned, they said, no, it won't happen, it's not gonna happen, and forget about it. Luckily, I did not listen. I did not listen because I knew if I worked hard enough and if I worked as hard as I did in bodybuilding, five, six hours a day, that I would make it, that I could prove them wrong. And I started working very hard. I started taking acting classes, English classes, speech classes, dialogue classes, even accent removal classes. <laughs> I ran around all day saying lines like, a fine wine grows on a vine. <laughs> because you see, we Austrians and Germans have a difficult time with the V and with the W and with the F, we get it all mixed up. So it was a fine wine grows on a vine. Or the sink is made out of zinc. And all those kind of lines, I said, oh, and oh, and you know something? All of a sudden, I got a little break. In the early 70s, I remember, all of a sudden, I got a TV show, a little part, then another little part. And then all of a sudden, I got a phone call from Lucille Ball to be in her special happy anniversary and goodbye, uh, which was with Art Carney. I had this six-minute scene as an Italian masseur. Now, most people don't know the difference between an Italian accent and the German accent, so I got away with my German accent. But I played this Italian monsieur, and I was so delighted. And then right after that, I got a guest starring role in Streets of San Francisco with Michael Douglas and Carl Malden, and then Pumping On and Stay Hungry. And then, of course, I landed the big role of Conan the Barbarian. So finally, I got the big, big break. And you know what was so interesting about it was that as soon as we were finished with the Conan movie, we were out there on a promotion tour, and the director said at the press conference, the director is John Milius, he said, if we wouldn't have had Schwarzenegger with those muscles, we would have had to build one. Now think about that. Before it was this huge obstacle to have this body, and all of a sudden the director says, if we wouldn't have had Schwarzenegger with his body, we would have had to build one. Now what a turnaround. And then when I did Terminator, James Cameron said, which was really great. He said, the I'll be back line became one of the most famous movie lines in history because of Arnold's crazy accent, because he sounded like a machine when he talks. So as you see, everything that the naysayers said was a liability became an asset. And the same was also in my political career. When I ran for governor, they immediately said, I shouldn't do it, it is a big mistake, it won't happen, I will lose, and all of those kind of things, and the rest, of course, is history. The bottom line is, if I would have uh, listened to the naysayers, my career would have ended when I was 15 years old. I would be still yodeling in Austria, in the Alps, and I would not be talking here today to you. And the reason why I'm here today and talking to you is, is because I did not listen to you can't, or it's impossible, or no. So I just recommend to you very strongly Ignore the naysayers. My fourth rule is work your ass off. 
Nobody ever stumbled upon success by accident, except maybe the guy who found gold in uh, California. But don't ever think that you can be that guy. I mean, you never want to fail because you didn't work hard enough. I always believed no stone unturned. Work your butt off. That's what I always believed. No matter what you do, work, work, work. I remember Muhammad Ali, one of my great heroes, had a great line in the 70s when he, when he was asked, how many sit-ups do you do? He said, I don't know, because I start counting only when it starts burning. When it starts burning, that's when it starts counting. You see, that's what makes you a champion. It doesn't matter in what area you're in. No pain, no gain. The bottom line is, one of my rules, which is work your butt off, if you don't apply that rule, all the other rules won't mean anything. I mean, it drives me absolutely nuts when people say, I don't have time to work out. Have you heard that many times? I don't have time to work out, or I have worked so hard all day, I'm tired, I cannot work out anymore, or I cannot read another book, or I cannot improve myself, or I don't have time, or I work so hard that I cannot really improve my business, or I cannot grow as a person, or any of those things. What the hell are we talking about here? I mean, today is 24 hours, you sleep six hours, so you have 18 hours left. I mean, I know there's some of you out there that say, well, wait a minute, I sleep actually eight hours, but let's just sleep faster, okay? You didn't, I mean, let's not get bugged down with this stuff here. Listen, when I came to the United States, I remember that I trained five hours a day, every day, and I was managing a construction business, and I was a bricklayer, and I went to college also, and I took acting classes from 8 o'clock at night to 12 o'clock midnight. All of that in one day. Every day I did that. I did not worry about it. I knew that I had 24 hours and I didn't want to waste one single hour. Because I believe of what Ted Turner said, who is one of the great entrepreneurs who started CNN and so on. He said, early to bed, early to rise. Work like hell and advertise. So that's what I believe. Just remember, you can't climb that ladder of success with your hands in your pockets. You must work your ass off. It's that simple. And my fifth and last rule is, don't just take. Give something back. Leave your mark on the world. I believe that we all have an obligation to do something for our community, something for our state, something for our country. We must serve a cause that is greater than ourselves. Because we all know that in the end we will be judged not by how much we made, but by how much we give. Ever since America greeted me with open arms, I've had this sense of responsibility and I felt obligated to give something back to America. Because I know that everything that I have accomplished is because of America. If it's my bodybuilding career, if it is my show business career, my political career, the money that I've made, my great family that I have, all of this is because of America. But I have to recognize the fact that America did not become the land of opportunity in this great country by itself. No, in history, people worked tirelessly in America. People fought and people died to make it the land of freedom and opportunity and the land of liberty. So now it is our responsibility 
if we want to keep it the number one country in the world, to work for that and to give something back to that country. And it doesn't matter if you're in America or if you're in Australia or if you're in China or if you're in Japan or in Italy. It is the same thing. You all have to give something back to your country, no matter where you're from. Now, I love the words of my father-in-law, Sergeant Shriver, who started the Peace Corps, the Job Corps, legal aid to the poor during the Kennedy and during the Johnson administration. He was uh, the number one public servant, and he always inspired me to become a public servant. He was one of my heroes. He said at Yale University at a commencement speech, he said to the students, tear down that mirror. Tear down that mirror that makes you always look at yourself. And you will be able to look beyond that mirror, and you will see the millions and millions of people that need your help. And I saw those millions and millions of people. And this is why I tried to take every opportunity that I could to give something back. I started training Special Olympians, people that were intellectually handicapped, to help them with weightlifting and powerlifting. I became the international powerlifting coach and the, the torchbearer for Special Olympics. Then later on, I joined the Simon Wiesenthal Center to fight prejudice, so we don't have the things happening again uh, as we had during the Second World War, during the Nazi Reich. And I joined also the President's Council on Fitness. I became the chairman under President Bush from 1990 to 1993 uh, to be the chairman and to promote health and fitness in all 50 states. I traveled all 50 states. I started after-school programs for the most vulnerable children, for inner-city children, to make them be able to say no to drugs, no to gangs, and no to violence, and to say yes to education and yes to life. And I, every single time I reached out and I gave something back, I felt fantastic. Nothing made me happier. I would rather play chess with an eight-year-old kid in an after-school program or play golf, a round of golf with a Special Olympian than go down another red carpet of a movie premiere. And I have nothing against movies, but to give something back to me is more important than just to think about myself. Eventually, the joy of giving back was so great that I decided to become a public servant full-time and to turn my back, actually walk away from my career as an actor. After I finished promoting Terminator 3, I jumped into the race, into the governor's race in California, and I ran for governor. And even though my friends advised me not to do that, they said, are you crazy, Arnold? Don't you understand that you would lose now this 20, 30 million dollars a movie that you're getting paid? And they will only pay you $178,000 as governor a year? Well, I didn't care because I knew that all the money that I've made and to be in that position in the first place to make this money is because of America. It was time to give something back. So I became governor and I didn't even take the $178,000. I gave it back to the taxpayers because it was petty cash. It's the last thing I needed. And I can tell you that those seven years were the most exciting and the most rewarding and the most gratifying years of my life. To work all day long to solve problems and to serve the people was absolutely heaven. It was the best job I've ever had, but I also knew that eventually it's going to come to an end. And after two terms, it did come to an end.
But when it came to an end, the one thing that didn't come to an end and was not finished was my desire to be a public servant and to serve the people. And this is why I continued to work for Special Olympics. That's why I continued to work on fighting my fitness crusade and traveling around the world to promote health and fitness. And this is why I continue to support after-school programs, and we even started the Schwarzenegger Institute at the University of Southern California to continue to inspire students and leaders around the world to find solutions to complicated issues and to give back and to make the world a better place. So because, thank you. But I tell you, that I was very fortunate that I had great heroes. I had great heroes that I could look up to, and I mentioned two of them, Muhammad Ali and Sergeant Shriver, my father-in-law. But there's other great heroes like Gorbachev, Reagan, Mandela, great leaders like Mother Teresa, Chancellor Cole, and Churchill, and the list goes on and on. I mean, those people had such an impact on the world. Single-handedly, they've changed the world. I mean, if you think about just Gorbachev, I mean, this man, every time I meet him, I'm in awe. I mean, he grew up under communism, and he rose from the bottom of the ranks straight up to the top. He became president of the Soviet Union, one of the most powerful people in the world. And he was the leader of the Communist Party. And when he was in the top position, he realized that the system was broken. Now, what do you do when you're the top leader of the Communist Party? And you realize that the system, that communism, doesn't work. Well, you know what he did? He dismantled communism. Think about the courage that it takes. I mean, the guts that it takes to do that. Think about that Gorbachev completely transformed his country with glasnost to give his people for the first time freedom. And then through perestroika, by reforming Russia's economy. He didn't wait for the next president. He didn't complain. He simply said, if not me, who? And if not now, when? So I feel very strongly all of us need to have and uh, embrace that kind of a spirit. We all can create change, whether it is in our neighborhood or in our local schools or in our country. It can be big, but it can also be as little as just going to a school kid that has problems reading and teaching that kids how to read or how to do math. We don't have to just work on me. We should also work on we. Not just me, but also we. Remember that. To lead a truly full life, you must give back. You must leave the world a better place than you found it. Because the bottom line is, it is up to us. I mean, those rules that I've given you are important rules, but giving back is one of the most important rules. I guarantee you that if you follow all of those rules, you will have many victories to celebrate. And you will leave you know, your work, and you will have extraordinary kind of a record, and you will leave a legacy behind that you can be proud of. So I want you to remember those rules. Have a vision. Think big. Ignore the naysayers work your ass off, and give back and change the world. Because if not us, who? If not now, when? Thank you very much. Thank you. Give it up for Mr. Arnold Schwarzenegger.
Obviously, you've had so many different careers. Out of all those careers, what would you say has been the most rewarding career for you? I think definitely being a public servant has been the most rewarding. But um, I would say that it is actually a very difficult question to answer mm. because I think that uh, it depends on what stage of my life I was in. When I was 15 years old, to me, I didn't think about being a public servant. When I was 15 years old, all I thought about was how can I become the most muscular man and the biggest guy, the most powerful guy with the most symmetry and the most muscles and win as many championships as possible. That was the most important thing to me. I only thought about that. I didn't care how I'm going to get there. That's what I wanted to do. I was willing to train all day long in order to get there. But then later on, when I won all those championships in bodybuilding, I said to myself, it's time to move on and to take on another challenge, something that is very risky to do where you could fail. I always tried to pick things that, uh, that were very risky and that were hard to climb, but I always shot for big goals. And I decided that I wanted to be, you know, in the movies. And I wanted to be a leading man. And I saw myself as like another Clint Eastwood or, uh, you know, Charles Bronson or uh, John Wayne or something like that. And, uh, you know, I, that was the most important thing uh, for me at that point. And keep still in great shape and all that. But then later on, as I said, there came a time when I said to myself, wait a minute, I have gotten all these opportunities and uh, this, this wonderful life and America has made it possible that I could have gone to any other country in the world and I wouldn't have even had a fraction of that success, that I have to give something back. We have to keep America for future generations the number one country. So I started thinking more and more about giving something back. Eventually, I fell in love with the idea of being a public servant that, uh, you know, I jumped into the governor's race. And at that point, that became the most important thing. You know, so it's, it's you know, like right now, to me, to fight not only a fitness crusade, which, by the way, we have won, because for four decades we've been out there talking about weight training and the importance of weight training. And at that time, people said, you're going to get a heart attack, you're going to get muscle-bound, you're going to become stupid if you work out, you're going to become a narcissist, you're going to turn gay, and all of those kind of things that they, <laughs> they were worried about. But the day, look at this, the day there's a gymnasium in every single hotel all over the world, in every military base, every police station, every fire station, every university, every sports team has weight rooms and they're relying on weight resistance training. Even in the hospitals, they have the rehab rooms and the centers where they do weight resistance training. So our crusade was successful and we're gonna continue this crusade. But the same thing is now, thank you. The same thing is now with the environmental crusade. I think it is extremely important, and I'm very proud of what Australia is doing with the environment. Uh, I think that California and, and, and Australia has sh shared many ideas and they're doing similar things, uh, which is really great. But there's a lot of countries that are not doing it, and this is why I started the R20, uh, which is an organization, an environmental organization that brings regional governments together from all over the world. Because I believe that those movements only can be successful if you fight them on a grassroots level, from the bottom up, rather than from the top down, like they're trying to do, by creating a Kyoto Number no. 2 treaty and all those things. Those are very challenging things to do, but they should continue working on that. But in the meantime, we should uh, do a ground movement, because I think all great movements have been successful on a grassroots level. 
if it is the anti-apartheid movement, the independence movement in India, if it is the uh, civil rights movement in America, or the, uh, you know, all of those movements have been successful because they are from the bottom up, and that's what we have to do also with our env environmental movement. Bring Democrats and Republicans and the Green Party and all the different parties together, and together we will be able to push back and reduce our greenhouse gases once and for all, so we don't have that many people at health, at, at, at health risk because there's millions of people every year dying because of the pollution and I think that we can do much better than that. Bill Gates once said that uh, often we learn more from our uh, failures than successes in the sense that often when we're successful we party and celebrate, when we fail we uh, perhaps ponder and reflect. In your life uh, would you say you've learned from both or, or success or failure from more? Oh, uh, I think that it is important that you learn from both. I think that this is good, like for instance, I learned from uh, success. When I had my first success in bodybuilding, I realized the rules that I shared with you today, those five rules, I applied those rules and that's what made me successful. So I applied those rules again in entertainment and in, in my acting profession, and again I was successful. And then I applied it again when I ran for, for office and got into the political arena, and again I was successful. So I learned that those are the, the, the different rules that, that, that I can apply, and I will be successful if I apply those. But the same is also with failure. The key thing is, is that when you fail, that you recognize why did you fail, where did you fall short, and you learn from that, and the important thing is, like I said, that you get up again, that you never stay down. You always get up, no matter how many times you fail, you get up. And you know, that's why I love that word, I'll be back, because you gotta get, get up, I'll be back, I'll be back, and they come back, and you come back over and over again. Um, you've went from Hollywood to politics, and now politics back to Hollywood. Some people would say acting and being a politician is the same thing. Well, I mean, uh, first of all, I think in both professions, it's important that you uh, kind of think about the people. Because if you do movies, it doesn't make any sense to just make movies that please you, but no one in the audience is going to go and see it. I mean, you need the fans to go and see the movies, to love your movies, so therefore you have to do the movies for your fans rather than for yourself. Like, for instance, with Terminator, we knew right away that when you looked at that story, that it was an international story, that it had an international appeal, and that audiences, it didn't matter if you're in Africa, or if you're in Australia, or in Austria, or in Germany, it makes no difference where they would like this story, because it dealt with action, it dealt uh, with a futuristic kind of a theme, uh, you know, it was good destroys evil, it was about machines versus human mm -hmm. beings, all of those things that people enjoy seeing. The same was with Conan, the same was with Twins, when we did the comedy. I always thought about what does the audience like to see and what do they like to see, not just in America, but all over the world. Now, it doesn't mean that you're always successful, because there's many times that you also make a mistake, and you think that this movie is going to be great, and it goes right into the toilet. That happens too. But uh, the important thing is that you always keep the audience in mind. And the same is as a politician. You have to think about what is, what is it that the people want you to do rather than just what you want to do. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, you have to lead, but if, for instance, the, the people uh, need infrastructure and you know, the, the kids go to overcrowded classrooms, like we talked about in California, or you need to rebuild the infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, 
then it would be a mistake not to do that. And that's why I insisted. I knew in the polls it was very clear in California that the people were upset about getting stuck in traffic every day for hours and hours, that they wanted to, for us to build additional freeways, additional lanes, additional on-ramps and off-ramps, and tunnels and bridges and all those things. And that's exactly what we did. And they were happy about that. So I think it is important in both cases that we do the people's work rather than for ourselves. And of course, the acting profession, what you learn in acting is, is that you connect with the audience, that you speak from your gut and not just out of the mouth, not to have just diarrhea out of the mouth, but to have actually have the, the, every word come with meaning. And that's very important in acting, so you connect and you make the scene believable. Well, the same is in politics. As you know that in politics, a lot of times people just talk, and it's just words. But people don't buy in, they don't believe it because someone just reads it off the script or from the teleprompter or something like that, and it doesn't come from the heart. So I think it's very important that you connect with the people and you make it believable, that you believe in it and that you are passionate about it, and then you can draw the people in and make them understand your vision and sell your vision. And that's what leadership is all about. Very good. The uh, U.S. Constitution, if it was ever to be changed that a, a foreign-born could run for president, is that something you'd consider? Well, I recommend it very strongly when they talk now about immigration reform. I say, well, the first thing that you should change an immigration reform is that law. <laughs> but I mean, it, I, I, you know, I, 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 I'm uh, actually just joking, but I mean, the, the bottom line is I think it's an outdated law that we have in, in, uh, in America. but. I have been able to do everything that I did because of America. So I'm not about to complain about the one thing that I can't do. You know, that's just the way it is. I mean, there's a reason why in America they have that law. And I think eventually it will be changed. It will be brought up to date. Um, if it will be happening in my lifetime, I, I don't know, but I think it needs to be changed. Uh, not for me, but I mean, just in general, I think it will be a good idea to have a foreign-born also be able to run for president. So it's just something that needs to be changed. Very good, give me a hand. Okay, so let's take some questions from the audience. Let's start right over here, far away with your question. When you're lifting, uh, you don't actually see the weight, you actually see a trophy. So I was wondering, do you um, have any other techniques that you can share with us that you use to stay conscious of that? Like, for example, I know some people meditate and stuff like that. I was wondering if you do anything like that? Well, I did uh, in the 70s some meditation, but I think that when it comes to actually being a, becoming a bodybuilding champion, the most important thing is that you are inside your muscles when you train, that you really feel the bicep when you do your curls, that you really feel every rep that you do when you do your bench press or your flies or your pullovers and so on, or that you really feel inside down to the bone, your calves, when you do your calf raises. There's so many people that just are in the gym and they just go and they go up and down and they think, and they think about something, then they go and they check their iPhone while they're exercising. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, it's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen because the muscle needs absolutely full concentration. It's that simple. That's the way you get the pump. 
to be inside and to go and concentrate and to visualize at all times when you train your deltoids to have huge, gigantic deltoids and to, to visualize that the deltoids are growing and then the chances of them growing is much greater than if you start looking at an iPhone while you're doing your exercise. So it's not gonna happen. So this is why I always believe very strongly that when I go to the gym, I want to go and focus 100% on my training in the gym. Mm. Focus, but when I walk out of the gym, I didn't want to talk about it anymore. It's over, because there's some people that like to talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. The same thing over and over. It burns me out if I would do that. I like to go into the gym and then I look at the equipment and then I say, okay, the day is arms and legs. So I'm going to go and concentrate on that. And then I see those machines and I start walking around and they go from one set to the next set to the next set to the next set. Uh, and, and just it's like a machine to go from one thing to the next and to really keep training hard and to not just do your 10 reps, but to do as many reps until you fail. Because it's the only way that you know how far you can push yourself is if you're willing to fail on every set. And uh, that is how I grew, this is how I became the champion, and there is no shortcut to that whatsoever. No matter what training principles you use, if you lose high reps or low reps or any of those things, you got to go and concentrate 100% on what you're doing. Just why we're on bodybuilding, Arnie, today's bodybuilders, how do, you, how do you see that compared to when you were dominating the, sp the sport? Well, I think that uh, in, like in every sport, um, people are getting better all the time. In bodybuilding, I've seen since my days, uh, bodybuilders have gotten uh, more defined, they've gotten bigger, uh, their bodies have developed more, I think because we have better machines now, we have better food supplements, better techniques in all of those kind of things that have developed, the better gyms in, in general and so on. Um, I think that especially in the amateur division in bodybuilding, extraordinary work has happened all over the world. There is now 180 countries that are members of the International Federation. It's the biggest sports federation in the world. We're very proud of that. We are literally a, few, a, a step or two away from getting into the Olympic Games. Uh, so there's great, great work. I think in the professional bodybuilding uh, side, I think that that has gone overboard. I believe that the, those guys have gotten too big. They are not able to perform and do the posing that, that, that they ought to do with this kind of development. They run out of steam on the stage. They cannot flex long enough. Um, I think they're taking certain things that is taking them in a direction where the stomach is hanging out and the, you know certain uh, uh, growth hormones and, and stuff like that. So I think that, that, that this has backfired because mm -hmm. we could see that the public's interest has reduced when man got overdeveloped yep. in a cartoonish way where it's not anymore beautiful, where they all of a sudden looks odd, kind of like power lifters with huge necks and they're walking around like that <laughs> and they can put the arms down. So it, it, it gets away from the whole ideal of what bodybuilding is all about. So I think that the reason is because in professional bodybuilding, they've paid so much attention to giving points for size, but not points for performance and for posing. 
if they will give more points for posing and for symmetry rather than just for size, you will see that change very quickly. You will not see guys running around in their suits like they know that there's something kind of weird going on there. But you will have guys that look like, you know, like in the old days, Steve Reeves. When, he's, when, when people saw Steve Reeves on the beach, they said, oh my God, that guy looks gorgeous. Look at that Herculean body. They were in awe of that and many other bodybuilders like that. But the day, the way they waddle around, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like to me, I think we went overboard in yeah. professional bodybuilding and now we have to rein it in. And uh, it's totally solvable. I mean, there's no problem with that. I think just in the next few years, we have to rein it in and just change the judging system a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Let's go over here, question over the side. Your greatest accomplishment and what is something you are yet to achieve that you have not yet? I want to be smarter. I want to learn every day. I want to uh, win uh, the, the environmental crusade. Uh, I, I cannot wait until I get the news instead of hearing that we have increased our uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 6% over the last year. I want to hear that we have now stabilized and then eventually hear that we are reducing our greenhouse gases like you're doing here in Australia or like we're doing in California where we make a clear commitment to reducing our greenhouse gases by 25% at a certain time. In California, for instance, by the year 2020 and then 85% by the year 2050. Now, I, my goal is to motivate the rest of the world to do exactly the same thing. And uh, I will not stop until this is accomplished. So that's one of the things that I want to accomplish and I want to achieve in the near future. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, question over this side, far away. Hey Arnold, um, I'm pumping on. Um, used to train a lot. Uh, you're the only one who used to train without any shoes on. Is there any particular reason you used to train in bare feet? Uh, no. Uh, there was, uh, it, it, uh, it, it, it was, it's one of those things that I just felt always good when I could grab with the toes the floor when I did squats or the, the block when I did my calf raises. It, it was just a habit. And uh, I, everyone always said, you're going to drop something on your feet and it's gonna, <laughs> you're going to destroy your feet and all those things. Well, I'm still standing, so I mean, nothing was, <laughs> nothing was destroyed. I just always liked working out barefoot. And today I don't. Today, when I, even when I work out at home, and I have carpeting in my uh, gym at home, uh, but I work out with slippers. Uh, so it was, just, uh, it was just a habit then, and I always uh, just loved it. So there's no specific reason at all. Okay. Very good. Another question over this side. Thanks so much for your talk, Mr. Schwarzenegger. Um, if there was one habit or routine or one thing that you could recommend, recommend that people do daily that's going to increase their success, what would that be? I think read. Uh, I think the most important thing is, and, and I, I can tell you that only because when I was governor, I worked from morning to night, having one meeting after the other. Every hour was another meeting. One time it was about prison overcrowding. Then it was about law enforcement, local law enforcement. Then it was about education. Then it was about the university system. Then it was about the welfare programs. Then about the healthcare system, and on and on and on. And to me, the capital 
of California became the greatest classroom that I could ever imagine. I learned, because every time you have a meeting, you sit down and get the briefings, and you're being brought up to date, kind of like what this issue is about and so on. And so you learn and you learn and you learn. I tell you, I felt so uh, rich every day to learn that much and to absorb it like a sponge. I felt like if every human being would have the opportunity to learn, because so many people kind of stop. They go to university, they get their college degree, then they get a job, and from then on, the growth stops. They always say that we are the most intelligent when we get out of high school or when we get out of college, and then it stops. So why not take on, even if it is 15 minutes a day, imagine that you'd spend 15 minutes a day to study history. And you, because today on the internet, it's so easy to find all those things, the, the Roman history, the German history, the European history, the British history, the African history, and all this kind of thing. And eventually, after 365 days of this 15 minutes studying, imagine the kind of knowledge that you gather. And the next year you say, I want to study the history of music, and you get into classical music, and you study about Bach, and about Beethoven, and about Mozart, and all of those different guys, just a little bit, not that you have to become a genius in it, but just study a little bit of it. You imagine that how rich a knowledge you become, and how much you understand uh, about everything. And so to me, it is always a shame when I see that people do not improve, or as I said in one of my rules, work your ass off, I said that people so many times say, oh, I am exhausted. I work so much. I don't have the time anymore to read another book. I don't have the time to join a seminar like this or a, a conference like that where you learn something. I mean, this is the best investment you can make to sit here and to sit and to listen to those kind of motivational speeches and so on. I have read so many of those books. I have listened to so many of those motivational kind of seminars and listened to the tapes. I think they're fantastic because they pump you up, they build you up, and you get out there and they say, okay, I'm ready to fight, and I'm ready again to climb and to, to be the number one and so on. So I think I would say make an effort to grow as a person all the time. Stay hungry. Next question. Hello. First up, on behalf of the audience, I'd like to thank you so much for coming down here. Really appreciate it. Uh, secondly, you. I'd like to know, um, when you were first starting out, how did you, what were the most important things you did to get the Arnold Schwarzenegger brand as an individual noticed and stand out from the crowd? Uh, I think that it is not something that you work on. I mean, I'd never even thought about the brand when I was 20 years old. I was training every day. Uh, I remember when I was in the military, I had my uh, dumbbells and my barbells on the side of the tank. I was a tank driver. I took the tools out of the side of the, the, the toolbox and I put my dumbbell, uh, the, the blades, the weights in there and the bars and then the, the collapsible bench I put in there and then we went and maneuver. And uh, at 6 o'clock or at 7 o'clock at night when we were finished, I pulled out all my equipment that would work out two, three hours a, a, a day. So, I mean, when everyone was tired and fell asleep, I would be working out. So to me, I always concentrated on just working hard, and that's how I became the youngest Mr. Universe ever with the age of 20. So when you then do that, and you win Mr. Universe with 20, and then you win the second Mr. Universe title with 21, and then the third with 22, and Mr. World, and Mr. Olympia, and it goes on and on and on. By the time I was 28, I won 13 World Bodybuilding Championships. So automatically, you develop a brand 
and people start paying attention to you. So then from then on, anything and everything that I did, people paid close attention to that because they wanted to know, does he follow through with that kind of discipline and that kind of a, a vision and all the things he does? And so everything started adding and adding and adding. And, uh, you know, so I developed that brand. And I was very fortunate that because of the work that I've done, that no matter what country I go in, you know, I have a great popularity. People have appreciated the movies. People have appreciated my uh, promotion for bodybuilding and for fitness and health and also my environmental work that I did and also being a public servant and the movies that they've done and they repeat the lines. You know, if you go to Arabic countries, they say, I'll be back in their way. And, uh, you know, in Austria, they say their way. And over here in Australia, their way. So, so, I mean, people appreciate this work. So that's how you slowly build the brand. But I never really thought about Oh, I'm going to go now and build my brand. Oh, I'm going to leave a certain legacy. So I, I was always too busy just to do, do the work than to worry about that, all, all of that. But I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, the key thing for me always was that uh, if, uh, if uh, people look at me, I think there's one word that should come to my mind, that their mind, and this is joy. I always had great joy what I'm doing. Like speaking here today to you, to, to me, this is not a job. To me, I am having a great time to stand in front of you and to talk to you. I love it. I love it. Actually, just on that, someone said to me earlier, can you ask Arnie, what does he do to relax? Is it true that uh, you have an army tank and that's your idea of relaxation? Yes, that's right. The tank that I used in the Austrian army, I eventually brought it to America. And uh, it's an M47, a patent tank that America gave to various different countries all over Europe. Is that um, we got one here? Is that, uh, is that, that similar or not? Well, no, this is a, that's not the M47. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's a, it's maybe a German tank or something like that. I mean, maybe from the, that's from the 20s, not from the 50s. My, my tank was from the 50s. <laughs> but it was a good try. <laughs> it was a good try. Uh, but you know, I, I have a great time. It, the tank was restored, and it has new tracks. It has a new engine. Uh, it uh, you know runs uh, 35 miles an hour, and I uh, I take it out on the weekends. And uh, yeah, um, we have a, a ranch. It's called the Melody Ranch, where they used to do western movies uh, in the valley uh, near Hollywood. And um, I always take the kids, inner city kids, that have stay in after school programs every day, five days a week, as a reward. I take them sometimes skiing to Mammoth. I take 50 of them at a the time and uh, teach them and get them to ski lessons and all that. Or I take them over to drive tanks all day long. We ride around with the tanks and so on as a reward. And we all have a great time doing that. But uh, I just want to say that on um, the end, when people say, what do you do for relaxation? You work hard and do all those things. I really, because I love the work that I do, I relax when I work. I don't have to go and say, oh my God, you know, I'm so wiped out now, I got to relax. I, I love the work that I do. When I am on a movie set, you know, and I get asked to come to the set and to act out a scene, I'm having the greatest time. Or you get in the car and you do a chase scene. I mean, how much more fun can you have? <laughs> or to go and you get the big guns and say, okay, kill, mow down a few people. <laughs> and you stand there, you kill a few people. I mean, you know, so it's, you, 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 kind of, you, you can be a child 
and you can play out your fantasies and all those things. Yeah, I mean, look at that. <laughs> look at this equipment. I mean, so it's, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. So I have a good time when I do, and I had a great time when I was governor and had all those uh, great meetings and, uh, you know, going on, on a campaign trip, and sometimes you have to do fundraising. That gets a little bit more tedious, of course. Uh, but, I mean, it, it, it's, it's all fun. I cannot complain, so I don't need to relax or anything like this. I relax right now. I'm relaxing standing here and, and, and schmoozing with you here. Uh, I, I, I relax completely. I'm, I'm, I'm not tense or anything like that. I don't need to go afterwards and leave here and say, oh, now I have to collapse and I can, uh, uh, you know, lie down or something like that. Very good. Let's say one more question over here. Uh, good evening, Mr. Schwarzenegger. I've waited my whole life to say that. Um, I'm representing the ArnoldFans.com, a group that you know a bit about. And, um, but first of all, I'd like to say how much of an inspiration you've been in my life and helping me achieve my goals. And I'm sure a lot of people in here as well. Thank you. Thank you. You son of a bitch. <laughs> Get to the chopper. <laughs> If it bleeds, then we can kill it. Very nice. Um, now, I understand that there are a couple of uh, scripts being uh, written and they're trying to um, race to have them finished. Um, one of them is the new Conan movie and the other is Terminator 5. And the question I would like to ask is, out of those two characters, the Terminator and Conan, what are the two, or what is the one that you hold dear most to your heart? Uh, I don't think there's one character. Um, even with, with, with all the other movies, like for instance, uh, I'm getting the script in two weeks from now about uh, you know, t the sequel to Twins, which would be called Triplets. <laughs> and um, so to me, that character was a, a really fantastic character. So you can't say, well, the Terminator character is more, uh, I like more than this character, or the Conan character I like less than the Terminator character, or something like that. These are all you know, great characters, and like I said, I was very fortunate to, to uh, be able to play those kind of characters that have an international appeal. To me, that's the most important thing, and uh, I'm, I'm very happy that the studios uh, want me to be in Terminator 5 and the star as the Terminator, which we start shooting in January. Um, and uh, that they want me to do King Conan um, and, uh, you know, do that, play that role and also to do another Twins movie. So, you know, I, I feel very proud of that and I feel very happy about that and, uh, and I'm looking forward to doing those films. Thank you so much. Sure, absolutely. Arnie, just on the movie Twins, obviously that was one of the first ones when you went from being an action hero to getting into comedy. Is it true that you uh, didn't take any money up front uh, to, to go on that movie? Well, I, you know, I always felt that I had a very intense side about myself and, uh, you know, kind of like a machine or an, like playing out the action hero, mm. but I also had a funny side to, to me and I, I always, you know, wanted to act out the funny side um, and 
but people felt like, okay, Arnold is so successful with the action genre, why would we give him another movie? Why not just give him action movie after action movie after action movie? But I wanted to do a comedy. So I went to the studio executive, uh, to Tom Pollock at Universal, and I said, look, um, there is a, a great idea that Ivan Reitman, the guy that did Ghostbusters, uh, has developed for me. It's a comedy, it's called Twins. And uh, I would do the movie, you don't have to pay me. I take the risk. Just give me ownership of the, uh, part ownership of the movie. And so Ivan Reitman and Danny DeVito and I took 40% of the movie and didn't take any salary. None of us. Yeah. And so we took the risk. Well, it happened to be that the movie made a huge amount of money. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, the movie only cost $16 million to make because we, did, uh, we took no salary. So because that would have been a, a, another huge amount of money there. So they saved that and then we own 40% of the movie and of course the money keeps coming and keeps coming. So it was a, one of those great, great decisions. But uh, you know, the, the movie was stunned. They were, they were shocked when I said, I take no money. Mm. But then on the end when we asked for the 40%, uh, you know, and said we would not sign the deal unless we get the 40%, I remember Tom Pollock, you know, the studio executive, he then, uh, it was a funny thing when he came around the desk and he pulled out his pockets and he just bent over like that. <laughs> <laughs> he says, go ahead, do it to me. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and sure enough, that's exactly what we did. <laughs> so I dare say for triplets, it's a different deal. It's a great deal. Yeah. <laughs> Let's have uh, two more questions. We'll go one over here. Hi, Arnie. First of all, I'd just like to say you're one of the most inspiring people to me and I'm very grateful in this moment right now. Um, my question is, who was your favourite leading lady? My favourite leading lady? I, you know, I think, uh, yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis probably was my favourite leading lady. You're absolutely right. Um, uh, it was Jamie Lee Curtis and also Lonnie Anderson when we did the Jane Mansfield story for television. Uh, she was another one of those great, great women. I mean, I was very fortunate, um, even with Sharon Stone. You know, I mean, she's really tough to work with. But I had a great time with her when we were shooting in Mexico. We had one incident um, uh, where we... Uh, there was a blow up on the set because we had this scene where she's supposed to attack me and then I grab her around the throat and apparently that she had an incident uh, in her real life, uh, kind of like where she was strangled or something like that. And so it freaked her out and uh, she threw a fit and all this. And we basically just explained to her, why didn't you tell us that ahead of time when we rehearsed? You know, we then would work around that. We don't, the, the, the scene can be rewritten. I don't have to grab you on the neck. I can grab you somewhere else uh, <laughs> with great pleasure. And, uh, and uh, so, so, so basically we worked it out on the set and uh, everything went fine then and we it worked around those problems in a gentle way. But you know, those, those things happen. But I mean, I worked with really tough actresses, uh, um, uh, but I think that, that the most uh, fun, and because I also knew her from Sun Valley, from skiing was Jamie Lee Curtis, 
and uh, she did an extraordinary job with that, uh, with that part. And uh, I think uh, that was one of the reasons why I always was looking forward to doing a sequel to, to True Lies. But as you know, with James Cameron, it's his movie. And he's a much more complicated guy. And now he's involved in all these Avatar movies and so on. <laughs> uh, so, so, which I wish him good luck with that. And, uh, you know, he has been extremely successful and has the most successful movies uh, in the history of motion pictures. So he's a terrific director. Very good. Final question. Final question for Arnie. Hi Arnold, uh, big fan, uh, long time fan of your movies and I've uh, also read your book and big fan of your journey as well. Um, I guess you've sort of touched on it through, throughout the, the talk tonight and even before about tackling climate change and doing all sorts of great things. I guess going back to your first rule about the big picture, the vision, um, I guess where, what is your vision? Now that after you've achieved so many great things, bodybuilding, movies, politics, uh, what's your vision for the future? And how does that sort of fit in with your, your five rules or the, the first rule? Well, I, I think I, I touched on the, my vision of the uh, environmental crusade and so on. But I think that uh, one of the important things for me was to create the Schwarzenegger Institute at the University of Southern California. Uh, in order to inspire students and to teach students to be great leaders in the future. I think that we have to really pay close attention to our students to make sure that they are the ones that really are going to be the leaders of the future, that we educate them the right way and that we teach them the important things. And when they become leaders in the public sector, how not to get tied up with being a conservative or being a liberal. You can have your philosophy. But in the end, it is so important and so much more important that we do the people's work, not the party's work, because we are public servants and not party servants. That is the biggest problem in politics, that people feel obligated to serve their party, if it's the right wing or the left wing or the middle or whatever. I think we have to serve the people. They are ultimately the ones that deserve the service. They are paying the taxes. And so this is what I want to teach future leaders, leaders to make decisions based on what is best for the country, what is best for the neighborhood, for the state, what's best for the people, rather than what is best for their party. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a huge hand for Ms. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Thank you. Give it up a huge hands. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our event for the Financial Education Summit. We look forward to seeing you next year and we'll let you know who's coming later. Enjoy, safe trip home, been a pleasure. Spread the news, enjoy.